But first, let's pray. Lord, thank you for together in your word, to celebrate communion together, to be together um, as a church family, bearing each other's burdens and sharing each other's joys. I, ble- I pray that the word today would bless us, would help us to see the importance of prayer, um, and also that that we need to be praying for even the people that we don't really like or agree with, but we're called to, Lord. We're called to be people of prayer. So it makes us a church. It makes us believers in you, that we would trust you with everything. In Jesus' name, amen. So last week, uh, I don't know why that's down so low. I don't know if I did something wrong. Anyway, um, you'll be happy. The Sunday school teachers here at First Christian Church immediately caught a mistake that as I was picking on Isaac in the second service, and I was kind of making those analogies about how we would t- try to weed out uh, a false teaching or whatever, two of our teachers immediately noticed that I had dates wrong. Um, I dated the Quran to be older than Jesus, which is not right. That's um, supposed to be A.D., uh, and so I messed up, and it was kind of a nice way for me to be proven that we've got some pretty awesome people around here, because I got a text message from one of the teachers, like, I think it probably dropped halfway through the service, or right after, and then Isaac came right up to me, he goes, oh, so, Muhammad predates Jesus, huh? I'm like, what? What are you talking about? So I completely messed it up. So I just want you to know that you're in good hands. We have some great people around here that will, will shore up what I mess up, and we got some pretty awesome teachers around here. Talking about prayer and the great mediator of Christ, we're going to look at some differentiations of the words that Paul uses for prayer, but I want you to see it as the fuel for everything that's happening in this church. And so we're going to read through it together, and then we'll break it down. Starting in chapter First of all, I intercessions and thanksgivings be made for all people. For kings and all may lead a peaceful and quiet life. God, this is good sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and the man himself is a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this apostle, I'm a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. So, we see in a culture that's swirling around the church in Ephesus, very, I think we can make some direct connections. I mean, there's a lot of times when we're going through the Bible, we make connections to something happening 2,000 years ago. We make direct connections to what's happening currently in our culture today. And sometimes that can be a little overdone. So I don't ever want to overdo that. I don't ever just say, you know, ah, it's the worst it's ever been in the whole world. And, but then you're like, well, I think people... In the Middle Ages, probably thought it was pretty bad then too. Um, and so we have to be careful when we start making those giant assertions all the time. But what we do see happening is as Paul is addressing this church in Ephesus, there are false teachers in the church. We established that in the last two weeks. There are people that are coming alongside these, this church, these, this group of people who are Jews and Gentiles, that this is a mixed group of people. And there are these teachers that are coming in saying you have to become more Jewish, you've got to follow the law. Paul's already addressed that, so we can see that to be true. And we also have 
that's all around. The Roman Empire is all over this place. There's rulers, there's people trying to tell them what to do, how to live their lives. And so Paul is addressing all of these things. And to this church, he's telling them, beware the false teachers, and he charges them with teaching the truth. That was last week. He charges them with teaching the truth of the gospel, teaching the truth of the text. Now he says, first of all then, after all that, false teachers, problems, things are happening, people are coming around, trying to distract you. First of all then, I urge that you pray. Be a people of prayer. He doesn't say, first and foremost, become Bible scholars. He doesn't say the first thing is to have everything organized and properly laid out. The first thing he doesn't say is make sure everyone has a copy of the scriptures, which was impossible at the time for everyone to have a copy like that. What he says is pray. And he gives us three different Greek words for prayer. Three different kinds of prayer. He's He's telling Timothy, you need to pray. You need to be people of prayer. And now a lot of times that gets into, well, how do I pray and the technical stuff and what do I do? And do I say it first in this way? Do I do it that way? And do I read prayers? Do I write my own prayers? Do I, you know, as Raina mentioned, the kind of sometimes there's a hesitation to reading prayers instead of just saying them off the cuff. But then every time I journal a prayer to God, I'm writing it. I don't just say it out loud and not, but I write my, in my journal, I write prayers, I write. There's a multitude of ways that we approach the Father in prayer. And we have a prayer that we say each and every week here, don't we? With the way that we were taught to pray by Jesus, that the Lord's Prayer helps to form the truth of how we pray. We pray first and foremost for the kingdom. We pray, for, well, first for our Father. We're so, he's sovereign and we are not. And then, and then really needs our daily bread, that God would be, a, be our provider. And then we're to pray for forgiveness for what we have done and to help us to forgive those who have done wrong to us. God to keep us away from evil, keep temptation away because we're often weak. We often can give in to those temptations, so we pray a hedge of protection, as some would say, around ourselves. And then we give him the glory, that it's all about him and not about us. We get this model of prayer each and every week. So then you start getting asked the questions. I got asked at Nav Night a couple weeks ago. What about... Does God hear my prayers? Does he answer my prayers? Is he, are my prayers effective? Is there a point to praying? Should I stop praying? Why pray? And we've all been in that situation, haven't we? You're praying for someone's health. We prayed for Scott for months, and he's no longer with us. We pray he's received his prize in heaven. We pray, we pray, we pray for leaders, pray for nations, we pray for our family, the people who are lost, we pray for all of these things. We pray for jobs, we pray for, and sometimes they're answered and we're, we come in here and we say, ah, oh, God answered my prayer specifically. Exactly. Awesome. And other times we come in and go, I was praying and praying and he didn't answer my prayer the way I wanted. Matter of fact, the person passed. The person lost the job. The person, so why didn't he answer that one, but he answered this one over here. 
And so before we jump into the specifics, I wanted to remind you of what we studied uh, last year in Revelation, when you see that prayer is a sweet aroma to God, that it's literally being collected in bowls as an aroma to God until we see, that's Revelation 5, that our prayers are not without cause, our prayers are not without purpose, our prayers are not unheard. All of them are heard. But as we pray the Lord's Prayer, we pray for His will and His kingdom to be done. Our first and foremost prayer is for the kingdom to come. And so, sovereign divine plan of the kingdom coming will run counter, or maybe not exactly, with our desired prayers. When you pray for the acceptance letter into the college that you want as a student, well, you don't get that here. Well, that was the prayer of your heart, but in God's sovereign plan, he really wanted you to go over here. In God's sovereign plan, we pray for healing. We pray for people to get out of the hospital, to, to walk out with cancer-free. We pray for that, and then they die. But in our prayers, they're heard by God, act of faith in us, but then God's plan will supersede and come over the top of our prayers. So even though you prayed for healing for that person, perhaps will was for that person to pass, but in the grief process, in the funeral services, in the gatherings of the family, three, four, five people are reinvigorated in their faith, they come to Christ, the seed is planted, it's watered by someone else, and if we, that person had walked out of the hospital cancer-free, There's a mystery that we don't really quite understand. People will argue over prayer and say, well, your prayers are to shape your heart to match them with God. It's not for God to do what you ask. He's not a genie in a bottle. That's true. But then we go to the Word of God, and we see where God's about to wipe out everybody again, and Moses prays. He says, all right, I won't. So does God change his mind with our prayers? Or is it already set in stone? Is it sovereign? What is happening? And I just say yes. We see in Revelation 8 that there is a moment when, all, when those bowls of prayer are filled. That the time of the second coming, the time of Christ returning the time of this earth being wiped out and the new earth and the new heavens coming will be when the tip of that bowl, the top, is filled. And then God in Revelation 8 directs the angels to pour it out. And all of the prayers of pain and joy and suffering and disillusionment and persecution and for generations, the billions and billions and billions and billions of prayers have been collected as an act of worship and a sweet aroma to God, he's going to pour it out. And then if your prayers didn't feel like they were answered, they're going to be answered in that moment. That your prayer helped. Your prayer was the, the trigger that as the prayers of the people fill the bowl to the brim, God's judgment is unleashed and it's all made right. So when we pray... I mean, it, you can, there's a million books and a million pastors and a pile of sermons to listen to, and people have ideas, and some people will tell you, if you just pray hard enough, everything will change. Well, I don't see that happening. 
And some people will say, well, just pray. It's not to pray for things to change. It's to pray for your heart to align with God's will so that you will accept all that happens, even if it's not what you want. I think there's some truth to that, too. But then, but then God's like, so what do we do? We lean on what we know to be true in the word. When there's a mystery, when we're unsure, when we're not really kind of, we don't have it sorted out, then we look at the word of God and that's where we lean. And we lean on the teachings of what we see directly in front of us. So when Paul says, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, we can break it down. We can see that there is request to God. That it's our, our we bring everything to him. Not with an expectation of gimme, gimme, gimme. Those are my first prayers for G.I. Joe action figures as a child for Christmas. Those are my prayers. Very selfish, very ungodly, very not really out, just, just desires. But it's okay to pray those desires too. It's completely okay. You just can't get mad and throw a tantrum when God doesn't give you your desires. We pray for things. We pray for, this is what I want to see happen. See this for me. I really want this to happen. I feel like this would help change all kinds. You pray all of your desires. But you do it with a humble heart knowing that you aren't God. That he's sovereign. We bring all of them to him. We pray in a talking relationship kind of way. We're going to talk to God. We're going to actually have a conversation with him. We're not just going to It's It doesn't have to be a specific road out way. We're going to talk to God as he's as close a friend as we've ever had. And then we see the into the petitions that we have for others. We pray for people who are sick. We pray for people who are near us. We pray for those who are far from God to come to God. We pray for doesn't know the Lord to know the Lord because we have in the Lord's Prayer the command to pray for His kingdom to come. We want people to know the truth of Jesus. And then we see prayers for thanksgiving that we're thankful for everything we have. When I teach, I between COVID and they made some shifts to the curriculum requirements at LCCC, but the, when I've taught culture anthropology there, it's, it's kind of their multicultural class that they want every freshman to take at LCCC. Um, and so there's hardly ever an actual person who's majoring in any social science, let alone anthropology. Um, but world class. That's essentially what it is. It's There's a lot of things out there you don't quite get. So we go through and you run through culture anthropology, you run through everything from language to um, the run through. And the, the whole goal of the class is just don't be an idiot. So one of the things I encourage people to do in that class is it'd be great if you didn't go to X, Y, and Z If you can do it while you're in college, while you have the freedom, even though college students don't think they have freedom, like, they don't have any idea, um, that go travel the world. 
Go to a couple places outside of the United States and see other places so that you'd have a good perspective as to what you have doing. And so I, we should all do that, especially in the church. That you land in other parts of the world and you see people that have way less in material possession, but they have a confidence in prayer and a confidence in God, and they are so thankful for everything that he has, been, he has given them. And you and I would encounter that culture and go, oh, they have to live like Little House on the Prairie here. They have to pump water and take care of animals, and they're sewing their own clothes, and they're doing their own stuff, and they have to cook every single meal. There's not a drive through anywhere in this place. Oh, what am I going to do? And if you encounter believers, faithful Christians from around the world, you will come to realize that when Paul is saying things like, bring every desire, talk thanks in all circumstances, he's not just saying this. That we here in our Western culture, we take a lot of this stuff for granted. We just think that Thanksgiving is a great holiday, which we will have an awesome meal in this room when it happens. But it's truly being thankful for every breath. And too often, we're not like that. We take for granted everything that we've got. We take, granted, take for granted the way that the Lord has blessed nations that have freedoms that other nations only wish they had. And instead, we get bitter, we get angry, we're mad because someone's going five miles under the speed limit, and we don't even, we're not even thankful for the fact that we can have a car with heat and air, and we're outside of the elements, so it doesn't take us three days to get somewhere to see a doctor. Paul is telling the church in Ephesus to pray first. Talk to God. Have a relationship with God. Be thankful for everything. He then tells them, for that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way, that we are supposed to pray for those who are our leaders, even if you don't like them. This does not mean just pray for them to go away. You're to pray for your leaders. Whether you voted for them or not, or you like them or not, we're to lift up. Now, think of the context. He's not talking about a democratic society where in four years you can upset the entire, the entire apple cart. That every two years you can change the house. That every six, well, the house all staged. That every so often you can have a complete shift in the direction and leadership of a nation. He's saying pray for your oppressors. Pray, pray for the people that will not allow you to have a vote. Pray for the one that is forcing you into military service, forcing your family to give up and pay unreasonable taxes, to do all. Pray for the people who are controlling you. Again, put in the proper context. So people around the world are reading the Word of God, reading 1 Timothy chapter 2, in oppressive regimes who they don't have the freedoms of expression, they don't have the freedoms of movement, they don't have any of the freedoms that we have in this country. And they're going to read this and go, well, this group of people is terrorizing my whole village, taking out my whole city, making it very hard for me to even function, to even put food on the table. And I'm supposed to pray for them? 
Yes, you are. You're to pray for them. Pray for leaders. That we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Put this in the right context. They have top of them in Ephesus. And the prayer Paul's asking them to pray is that they would just be able to practice their faith. Just not leanings and what the church believes and for the church to have leadership and it would be a great theocracy of, you know, divine leadership. It's not what Paul, he said, pray that they'll just leave you alone to share your faith in persecution and out of persecution. Pray for leaders, yes, for all of us. If we had a pot leading us every way, trusting the Holy Spirit, being God, that would be the ideal. But even we don't have that. Anyone in high position, we pray for them. We pray that we could just gather together and have church. That we could open the word of God and not be killed for it. That we could share faith. This isn't a prayer for just Christians to get in charge and that everything just follows the Bible. Would that be great? It would, but then we'd disagree over that too. You'd have somebody having their interpretation of some scripture over here. I remember when I was uh, teaching, I got asked by a family member, um, don't you think that we should have prayer in school? And I said, well, I, I didn't know it ever left. And this family member looked at me, well, but they don't pray in school. I, I see students all the time praying, especially on test day. <laughs> so I, and, well, you know, but I think there should be someone to, to read a prayer over the intercom and pray every day. And I said, you know, I, I don't disagree. I think that'd be great to have the faculty and staff praying over the school Every student, that would be awesome to start the day in prayer. I'm not going to disagree with that. But then, then we got the problem of who we're going to decide who gets to say the prayer. Is it just going to be me, the evangelical Christian, or are we going to let the Wiccan pray too? Are we going to let the horoscope be prayed? Like, what are we. So you really are trying to establish a religion in the school when you say that. And what happens if it's not the one you like? What if the school has a vote and decides we're going to pray to Allah? Oh, we would never allow. Okay. So how do we encourage the teachers, the leaders? We have a free society, we have a free space where everyone can bring their Bibles to class. I led a Bible study early in the morning at the school. I took care. Like, why, why do we encourage this kind of a way? So that no matter who the leader is, no matter what's happening, we're just left alone to be peaceful and share our faith, and be men and women of God in this society. The family member didn't like that, but it's okay. We can disagree on things. And so like here now, it seems that there's pockets of places around the world where that's becoming less and less possible. To where just to carry your Bible into a coffee shop or carry your Bible into a place of work or into worship or, in, or not place of worship, place of, of harder and it's becoming more and more frowned upon, but we should still pray as Paul's giving us that we should be allowed to exercise our faith in the freedoms 
that we would desire. We're not going to mandate and dictate someone to be a certain faith, to walk in a certain building. I just want the opportunity to be like Paul in Acts 17 and have the opportunity to share my faith. I'm not afraid of the debate. I'm not afraid of the conversation. I know what's true. And so Paul is telling this church in Ephesus, pray for your leaders, even when you don't like them. I'm fairly certain if we started, I would never do this, so I'm not, we're not doing this. If we all pray different prayers for our current leaders. Some of us pray that they would wise up and you know, follow a better path, and others believe the path they're on is perfect and just keep going. Pray for your leaders, even when you don't like them. Pray that God would bless them. Pray that God would help them to follow his plan of the kingdom being known. Pray for them. It's also kind of hard to hate people that you pray for all the time. You're actually lifting them up in prayer. So even the leaders you don't like, if you're praying for them, from the local level to the national level, your venom will start to wane a little bit when you're lifting them in prayer before the Father. This is good. It's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, caution. This is not universalism. Is there a desire for all the knowledge of truth? Yes, God has that desire. Does this mean that every person on the planet ever born is going to have their way in heaven paved because of this This is the cautionary tale that we have. Because there's one something, we have to look at the totality and understand what's happening. Because Paul says here, it's pleasing in the sight of our God and Savior desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. You, you can't just grab universalism. Because if you read the rest, the New Testament, you will find very clear teachings that there is only one God. Matter of fact, we'll get there in just a second. It's like the next verse. And so you have what's he saying here? What's he mean? What's happening? Is the desire saved? Yes. Will all people be saved? No. How do we know that? Over and over and over again, we see people rejecting the truth of God. We see his, yes, his sovereign will, his desire would be for all people to come, but he knows that's not going to happen. Is his desire for everyone to know? Yes. But Paul, through the lens of the scriptures, Paul doesn't say that everyone's going to make it to heaven. He makes it very clear that you have to put your faith and trust in Jesus. So this context, leaders, pray for leaders. There's a desire for people to know the truth. Does that mean all leaders we pray for are going to follow God? Of course not. Does it mean that all people we pray for, they're going to, we want them to come to faith? Are they going to come to faith? No, they're not. And so we have the whole gospel. And understand, which... I can't really, it's hard to, when you say, when you play Euchre, 
you have the trump card that's had a whole new connotation in the last like six years so anytime i put stuff up there in like the vernacular of card i'm like i hope they don't we just talk about politics and leaders i hope there's no one thinking i'm anyway i'll stop from his way and live. Repent. Repent of evil ways. Why? And Isaiah, a righteous God and Savior, there is no one except me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. When you look at all you can desire of God's heart is for people to be saved. That is the desire of his heart. But we also know that people that don't put their faith in Jesus. They don't put their faith in the God of the Bible. They're not going to be saved because we see in Isaiah there is only one God. So you have good news of the gospel. You have to read those passages. You can't. God's for everyone going to heaven. That his desire in relationship is that all would come to faith. But he knows that's not going to happen. I, but it doesn't mean they're going to happen. And we see clearly in Scripture, not everyone is going to go to be with the Father forever. They're going to reject. They're going to say no. They're going to push away. And God, as a loving, good Father, gives them what they want. It's not about us. It's about him and his will and his plan coming to fruition for eternity, and we get to be a part of that story. For there is one God and there is one mediator. So just, I mean, you go from one passage to the next. Like, it's literally, I mean, you're reading right here, who desires the man, the man, Christ Jesus, who gives testimony given at the proper time. The only way Jesus, the mediator. There is one God, one mediator, end of story. Paul is right there clear. But he just said he desires for all people to come to truth. So you can't in verse 6 and then not get to verse 7 and say there's only one God. When people start picking and choosing that kind of stuff, be very weary. Weary. Weary, not weary. I'm weary of the weariness. Be wary. One God, he is our mediator. His death on the cross bridges the gap. His death on the cross fixes what was broken by Adam. There is one God, sovereign over it all, perfect in the Trinity with God the Son and God the Spirit and God the Son stepped out of heaven to be the payment for our sin and he is our mediator. He's the one that's between us and God. He's the one that helps the Father to see no sin in us because he's taken it all on himself. He's the one that makes the statement in Romans 8, 1, there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus true. But he doesn't see, God the Father doesn't see any of sin, past, present, or future if your faith is in Christ. He's the mediator. 
He's the one working this out. Not just 2,000 years ago, but continually even today. It's what fuels our worship. It's what fuels us. Is this great mediator who loves us. He intervenes. He takes it away. He pays the ransom. He's alive, continuing to mediate for you and for me. It should make us fall in love with him more and more. That his act on the cross of taking away our sin wasn't the final act of our Savior. He continues today to mediate for us. For this preacher and apostle, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. In Hebrews 4, tells us that this high priest, this mediator, is the one who's going to take tempted like us, he was without sin, we can have our confidence in him, that he has made it right. And then, knowing that, and being shored up by that, we can then share the gospel. You aren't condemned if you're in Christ Jesus. You aren't seen as unclean. You're seen as loving, child of God, redeemed, forgiven, forever. And so when Paul says that he's appointed to teach that, that's a call on us. The idea of heralding, of telling the truth, of is on us as well. Now, Paul has to say it in a different way because he's actually an apostle. And he has, he has a... And so he has the parenthetical citation. Much debate over that. Why is that in there? What's that mean? That seems awkward in conversation. But Paul... There's one God, Jesus. He's for this He's given apostle because Jesus encountered him on the road and knocked him to his knees. And so he's reading this letter, having this letter read to them. I'm not making not making this up. And then he gives us the close. A teacher of the Gentiles. That the faith is not just reserved to Jews. There's a lot of weight in this testimony. A Pharisee among Pharisees, a Jewish leader, a very intelligent man, known to be a persecutor of Christians, says to the people who are reading this, I'm not lying. Faith is for all who would call on Jesus. He tells them it's for everybody. This isn't just for the Jews. <clears throat> so to close, without see that we see that great media. And we see that it's for everyone. That's the central message of all of our lives, to herald this truth, to be teachers,
proclaimers of the truth. It's in our prayers. Have you ever had those moments where you've been praying for someone? You've been praying and praying and praying, and then God opens a door for that conversation? Have you ever had it's like God's impressing upon you? It's not a, a, it might not be a direct vision. Some people are blessed with direct visions, with like they have vivid dreams, they feel this. I've never had that blessing. For me, it's been more like, hey, you need to go talk to them, or someone's been put on my mind, or and you'll see me sometimes on a Sunday morning. Like I'm up here talking, and then I'll get this kind of thought or idea in my head, in my heart, like you need to talk to that person, and you'll walk beeline for someone. And maybe a while, maybe it's because, but for some reason, God put on my heart, I, I need to, I need to reach out. I don't know what's going. I just know I got to talk to him. There's been times when I've been in church, and there's been people around. I thought, you know, I, that person needs to be my friend. I don't know what you're going to do, God. I don't know how you're going to do it, but I feel like that person needs me in their life, or I need them in my life. I'm not sure what's going on, but I'm going to reach out to them. And I'll go do that. We're shaped by prayer. We're shaped by how we are praying for people, praying for opportunities, opening our ears, opening our hearts, and we let God use us. That's central to the whole message of who we are. Are you open to do whatever he asks of us? Do you feel the weight? Do you feel the weight of salvation? With a, do you feel the weight of freedom? Do you feel the weight of being accepted as a brother, as a sister? Like there's a, there's a, there's a life to it because the yoke is easy, but there's also a weight to it. Like I'm part of a family and a mission, and I've got a plan, and God's using me, and I'm not just here by a happenstance. I have a responsibility. I have things. Get all this stuff. He's equipped us and uniquely give, gifted us in ways to make his name famous. Do when you look back what you're so proud of, do you see that as redeemed things that are part of the story of who you are and how God has saved, rescued, and can use you for his glory? Do we don't look back kinds of shame, but instead we are thankful for our God, how God has pushed that away, forgiven us of it, marked it, and then he uses that in our story. Like around, uh, I felt the loss and grief of losing my own parents yet. My wife has. And so when I do um, hospital visits, when I do, like I felt the weight of loss of my father-in-law, but I've not felt that gut-wrenching, my dad or my mom is gone. I've not felt it. But my wife has. So I, I can go into a home, I can go into a hospital room, and I can try to bring comfort, I can try to bring, but I'm also pretty quickly going to say, hey, would you... I'm sorry. I'm so, 
there's some people in church or some people I know that would love to talk to you because they have, I can be empathetic, but it's deeper when you've walked through that. Now on the opposite side, when I do, when I talk to, when there's divorce in the, in the middle, I've walked that battle. I've walked through that. I counsel in what can we do in, because I've walked that battle. I've walked that path. I don't struggle with substance abuse. Well, maybe sugar. So I don't know what it's like to have that. But I know people in our congregation and people that are around that do. And they've found great victory over that. And so even though like you, you shouldn't look back at your past and go, I am so glad that I was a heathen for those years and I sinned like crazy. And that's awesome. Thank you, God, for giving me that crazy story. But instead, with humility and humbleness, we see who we are, we understand who we are, we fall in love with Christ because we're redeemed, and then we step into those moments when we have some weightiness to add to the story. I mean, think about Paul asking this church in Ephesus, pray for everybody. And in that room, you know are people that lost family members to Roman soldiers that lost people in battle, that had their homes destroyed, their livelihoods taken away, and Paul has the guts to say, pray for the leaders. And then he tells them, there is only one God, and there is only one mediator. His name is Jesus. Drawing very distinct lines in the sand to a mixed group of people that grew up believing in Greek mythology and Judaism, and he's drawing very clear lines in the sand. There is one truth. Strive for it. And how are you going to live a life with all thanksgiving? Saying that my life isn't mine. It's all yours, God. Use me. Guide me. You saved me. What else am I going to spend my life doing? This letter Timothy is not just church structure and how worship is organized, we'll get to that. But it's really about people having a relationship with the people they're sitting with in this church, living in a hostile territory that's sometimes antagonistic towards faith. That if the church clings together, sharing the collectiveness of their lives, they can get through anything. That's a message that we should all receive, no matter what time, what year, what decade it is. We will get through whatever comes our way because our faith is secure in Christ and we have each other. Let's pray. Together. And I pray you would help people around that need a word of encouragement, need some support. And I pray, Lord, that you will open our eyes for the, the ways we've grown, the ways that we have seen victory. It can help be an encouragement and a voice of truth to people that are all around us.
In a time that seems uncertain for most of us, this is nothing new in the history of the world. There have been times before now when people have disagreed, when people have not understood what's happening, ravaging nations and neighborhoods, and your church has always stood right in the middle, a place of hope, a place of care and support, pointing people to you. Help us to do that. In Jesus' name, amen.